Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MyFit Podcast, hosted by fitness coach, business owner, and CrossFit Games athlete, DJ Hillier. Physical fitness and podcasting are two of his life passions, and his goal is to train, educate, and inspire those who want to improve their general health. These podcasts are designed to help everyone, from the occasional gym member trying to improve their overall wellness, to the fitness enthusiast. The episodes capture a wide spectrum of topics, including training, coaching, nutrition, entrepreneurship, relationships, and mindset. Follow the show on Instagram at the MyFit Podcast and subscribe to his newsletter at djhillier.com. So let's get to it. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. This is DJ Hillier, and you are listening to episode 196 of the MyFit Podcast. This week on the show, I'm honored to chat with behavioral scientist, expert advisor, and keynote speaker, Dr. Abby Morano. Dr. Abby completed her PhD in behavioral analysis and psychology and has been lecturing at academic institutions since she was 23 years old. Dr. Abby's specialties include nonverbal communication, trust, and the psychological mechanisms underpinning human decision making. Today's conversation was an introduction, a one-on-one, if you will, to body language. Dr. Abby got into body language at a very early age and has found extreme success producing some of her first work and first uh, papers at the age of 19. And that's what I first dove into was, how did you find your passion at such an early age? After that, we talked about how to compare lower body and upper body language. To my surprise, there's actually more information, insight, um, and takeaways, quite honestly, for the lower body versus the upper body. And Dr. Abby has spent a lot of time uh, doing research on lower body language. So I really wanted to get into that. After that, we talked about how your lower body can make you more or less approachable. Then we talked about what you should do with your hands. We talked about how to gain a competitive advantage with your headshot. We also talked about how Botox influences depression. Very interesting studies there. Then we talked about the optimal head position when you're listening to a counterpart. Then we talked about how to establish trust through nonverbal communications. This is a really enjoyable conversation, something that whether you are a speaker, presenter, leader, or just somebody that is constantly communicating with other people, so anybody listening to the show, you can always up your game on some of your nonverbal communications and your body language. And I honestly think it's some of it is a little bit of a lost art. We know it when we see it, but it's almost becoming more common now for people to have poor body language or poor nonverbal communication. So I think this is a great 45 minute conversation on how you can level up that part of your life. If you guys enjoyed the show, please be sure to leave a rating review and share it on your social medias. Your five-star feedback helps the show grow and helps to bring on more amazing guests like Dr. Abby Morano. Without further ado, enjoy this masterclass in body language with Dr. Abby Morano. Let's go. MyFit Podcast is brought to you by Element. Element is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means lots of salt with no sugar. Element is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs and is perfectly suited to folks following a keto, low-carb, or paleo diet. Element contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio of 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. 
with none of the junk, no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, and no BS. Healthy hydration isn't just about drinking water. It's about water plus electrolytes. And it makes sense. You lose both water and sodium when you sweat. So both need to be replaced to prevent things like muscle cramps, headaches, and energy dips. There are several flavors to choose from. My favorite is the citrus salt, which is how I start every single day. And as listeners of the MyFit podcast, you can now receive a free element sample pack with any order by using the link www.drinkelement.com forward slash MyFit. Again, that's www.drinkelement.com forward slash M-I-F-I-T. Go get yours now. Abby, welcome to the MyFit podcast. It's such a joy to have you on the show today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So before the year of 20 or turning 23, you accomplished so much PhD, keynote speaker, you're producing papers, you're doing all this stuff. Most people at the age of 22 or 23 are trying to figure out what bar they're going to go to on Thursday or Friday (laughs) night. Tell me, why was it so different for you and why at such a young age did you find so much success? Um, So first, thank you. Uh, That's very kind of you to say. Um, Second, I think when you know what you want to do, it's really easy to then work towards it. I got very lucky in that I found in my final year of A-levels, I fell in love with psychology. Um, And I read the work of Paul Ekman. And I mean, I fell into the micro-expression trap, which is something I very much stay away from now. But diving into the body language stuff, I, I found it so interesting that human beings are so unique and independent Yet we can apply principles that are the same for everybody and understand everybody. And I thought that was incredible. So, I mean, I've always been the kind of person, my, my dad's always taught me that if you don't work for things, it's not going to happen. No one's going to give you anything in life. You just, you've got to go for it. Um, so when I started my um, undergraduate degree, I just went for it. And I approached lecturers with research topics. And um, I did do a bit of, the going out in my undergrad years, but it just wasn't me. It's just never really been me. Um, so I just put my head down and worked really hard. And um, I have a lot of people ask me, you know, how I got my doctorate so young and how I became a lecturer so young. And really the answer is you have to give up a lot. It's not easy. And, you know, I didn't see my family for a long time, once or not even twice a year. Um, didn't really go out, didn't see friends because I had a goal to work towards. But I I love my work and it, it's so rewarding to be able to contribute to the body language literature and understand human behavior. Isn't it awesome when you're so in love with what you're doing that it doesn't feel like work? I think a lot of people can kind of, they're listening yeah. and, they, and a lot of listeners can probably resonate with that where other people are saying, man, you work so much. And maybe I'm talking to myself here, but when somebody says that to me, it's like, I don't even call it work because I absolutely love it. And if I didn't get paid to yeah. do it, I would still probably do the same thing. Yeah. Interestingly, I had this conversation the other day because I get people asking me the question, you know, what do you do for fun other than work? You know, what do you do? And it's all, I hate that question because I love my job. Um, You know, I, I work really long hours, but it's my own choice because I don't want to stop working. And I only stop because I'm so tired that I can't cognitively keep carrying on. So I go to bed and then, you know, I wake up in the morning, I start early because I'm excited when you work. I know the um, cheesy saying, if you love your job, you don't work a day in your life. 
But when I got offered my new job, um, when I, I left academia full time and started working for social engineer, I accepted the job before I knew the salary because it just didn't matter. And then obviously then it was official, but I just said yes, because it was what I wanted to do. And then you think about everything else after. So cool. Congratulations on your success. I want to dive into some of the body language stuff that you are an expert in. I think the best way to go is maybe to go lower body to upper body. And I know lower body is kind of your bread and butter. So let's start there. First, what do we need to know about body language? If we call this kind of a a body language 101 class, what do we need to know first? And then let's dive into the lower body. Okay. So I always start with differentiating body language from nonverbal communication. Because I think people tend to assume that nonverbal communication is body language and it just means the same thing, but then they're not necessarily synonymous because nonverbal communication is everything that communicates. It's not a word. So, you know, your tone of voice, which is paralanguage, things like haptics, which is touching behavior, proxemics, which is use of space, um, and then obviously facial expressions and body language. So when I, I dive into body language, I make it clear that we are just talking about the body here. Um, like when I do um, nonverbal mimicry, I do body mimicry, not facial mimicry, because it's important to differentiate, when, to understand kind of the differences. Um, diving into the lower body, um, the lower body is so interesting because we don't have a lot of control necessarily over what our lower body does. I mean, we can control our lower body, but our nonverbal expressions are expressions of emotion, typically. That's uh, why facial expressions are so telling. And say you're trying to conceal an emotion, you are going to think, you know, I shouldn't smile or I shouldn't do this with my hands because people look at the hands. The last thing you think is I should stop doing anything with my feet. You just don't think about what your lower body is doing. And that's one of the reasons that it's so interesting to study because we don't pay a lot of attention to it. So there's so much information in the lower body. Um, And when I started doing research studies on foot behaviors, um, obviously I had to ask lots of people if I can take pictures of their lower body and their feet. And everybody was like, you know, what weird experiments are you doing? Um, But, you know, they were great because they're so telling. And the findings that you get just looking at the lower body are extraordinary. And what were some of the things you found? So I did one study um, looking at expressions of distress um, because I think that looking at negative affect, which is just negative feelings, that general feeling of negativity, stress and de-stress, I think is really, really interesting because that's what a lot of the deception detection literature is actually identifying. When people say that they're looking for cues of deception, well, they're not all they're actually seeing is high emotional arousal and stress. So I kind of wanted to take that to the lower body. Um, And the reason I I did this, I kind of have to backtrack. I did my PhD in nonverbal mimicry um, and how we can use that to create information elicitation. And I accidentally found that the effect was strongest for the lower body compared to the whole upper body, which didn't. Wow occur to me in the beginning Mm. and then it kind of directed me to this study on looking at distress in the lower body because i thought if we can create cooperation through lower body behaviors maybe we can identify distress um and what we found was you absolutely can identify distress in the lower body 
And in fact, it might be a better indicator than the rest of the body for the fact that when we are in high amounts of distress, a lot of the time we try and conceal it. So say you have um, two people in therapy and potentially one person is being harmed by the other person, but they don't want to express it. They're going to be trying to conceal their behaviors or you're in a forensic investigation and you are looking for cues of high emotional arousal. They're going to be trying to conceal it. We're not going to be focusing on the lower body. So though the fact that we can see distress in the lower body is massively important and really useful to know. Hmm, interesting. Talk to me a little about orientation. You've talked about this before in other podcasts on where yeah. people's feet are placing. And ever since starting yes. to research you, Abby, I've been kind of playing this game at the gym and in my work and watching people. And gosh, it's amazing how many people don't face their toes towards their counterparts. Talk to me a little bit about why that's yeah. so important. And then also, why don't we do it? Are we nervous? Are we scared? What, what's going on? So, okay. Um, the, the basis is when we orientate towards something, we like it. We orientate away, we don't like it. And this is an evolved behavior because human beings are ultimately driven by threat and safety. We think about our evolutionary history. Um, it wasn't a particularly complicated society and it wasn't very technical. We didn't have mobile phones or internet. The danger was kind of here and now. The danger is, can I eat? Um, is this person a threat to me? Is there a predator? So everything is very black and white. So we needed to communicate safety and threat. So those are the, the evolved drives in us. And we move towards things very quickly that are safe, move away from things that are not safe. So we do have this natural kind of tendency towards orientation, as well as when you like something, you like when you're talking about something you like, you lean in really close and then you catch yourself and kind of move backwards. Like you see two people that are really enjoying their conversation, they lean towards each other. You see someone kind of leaning away like that, it's an indication that they're probably not that interested. And it's also another natural behavior we do when we're trying to distance ourselves. So I wanted to see if that was the case in the lower body, but not necessarily if we orientate towards or away, whether we will approach somebody who is orientated towards or away. Because if somebody is orientated towards us, we know that they're perceived as more approachable. Because if they're orientated away, it's kind of a signal to us that they don't want to be in the conversation. Even if we are just coming from the outside and they're having a conversation with someone else, we know from the literature that if we call their name and they just kind of turn, but they don't orientate their body, they're perceived as less approachable. And this is important in many situations, for example, first responders, if we are going to someone, we need to say, hey, there's a problem here or hey, I need help. Being approachable is really important. But again, we never think about the lower body. And I hadn't seen any research on the lower body. So I conducted a study with um, my research team um, and we found that simply orientating the lower body, the foot and sort of the lower leg that goes with the foot has an effect. So if my upper body is orientated towards someone, but my lower body is orientated away, they're perceived as less approachable than if the whole body is orientated. Wow. And again, a really simple adjustment that you can make, one that has an effect. I talk, you think about approachability and you said a first responder. I think about just some people maybe that are at a, 
a club, a bar, a social gathering. Maybe they're trying to uh, be approachable for a man or woman across the room. I think one simple way for you to become yeah. more approachable is to look at where your feet are facing. I just think I imagine somebody like maybe at a bar and they're leaning up against the bar and their feet are facing east or west and the woman is and their man is north or south. You're kind of just you're, you're blocking them off. And there's something very as simple as where your feet yeah. are facing can really change if they approach yeah. you. And you can use it as kind of a signal if someone is trying to get away as well. Because when we do studies and we look at the blood flow in the body, when someone is scared, they go into fight or flight mode. When they go into fight mode, you can see the blood pump towards the chest. When they go into flight mode, you see the blood move towards the lower body, which is why when you get scared, you have this instant reaction. No, your feet need to go. So the blood goes to your lower body so that if you need to run, you can run. Again, it's an evolved behavior. Our body is working in ways that we're not aware that it's doing. You know, we don't think, okay, well, I might be scared, so I've got to move the blood to my lower body and angle my feet. Our body just does it because it's evolved to do so. But that's, again, why the feet are so telling, because they are a great indicator of this fight or flight response. Before we move to upper body, is there anything with lower body that we need to know about crossing your feet or crossing your legs or when you're sitting, how you kind of orientate yourself that way? Is there any anything that you found in that regard? So what I always try and avoid doing is picking individual behaviors so much um, because there is th there's difficulty here because although certain behaviors do mean certain things, like for example, when I... I pull my lips together often it's because I'm in distress but not always it could be something else for example when we are in distress we often touch our necks and kind of almost like strangle ourselves not always it can be for other reasons so I try and avoid those behaviors but what I find with the lower body and what we found in research is it's more about the sequence in which things occur so it, have you heard of blocking displays so a blocking display is basically when we feel threatened, we will put something in front of us. We see it, we kind of cup our hands and often put them in front of the genitals. Um, or we get a bag and move it in front of us. You know, in therapy, they have a pillow and they put a pillow there. And it creates this buffer. And it has been shown to be a blocking effect when we do feel distressed. But again, not always. Um, and the research that I carried out, what we found um, in an interview context when individuals were in distress versus not in distress, they showed blocking behaviors in both because the actual context itself just creates a bit of anxiety. So it was being driven by that anxiety. But what we did find with the lower body wasn't necessarily about that blocking display. It was about the sequence in which it occurred in. So we know that open gestures occur when we feel really confident and very dominant. So if I'm talking and I've got my limbs really far away from my body, it's more open. If I'm really closed up, it's the opposite. And I feel, you know, I'm trying to make myself smaller, almost trying to disappear. It's exactly the same with the lower body. Um, so we found in the neutral condition, um, if the individual would say sit in a figure four pose where they've got kind of one knee out across and the ankle across the other foot, and then they'd have their knees out. If they showed a blocking display within those kind of behaviors, it didn't mean anything to do with distress. If they showed closing behaviors, so this is what they did was they'd tuck their feet under their chair, they'd cross their ankles over, they'd cross their knees over, 
they'll do a repeated closing display, blocking display, closing display. And that was the telling thing. It wasn't the behaviors. It was the group and the sequence of behaviors and kind of the dimension that it fell within this open versus closed. And that's the most telling thing. And I think that's the most useful because if I say to you, look for this one behavior and then look for this behavior, you're looking so specifically. If I give you a dimension and say, okay, we'll look for multiple displays of closing yourself, that's much easier to keep track of and it's much easier to use. Talk about the upper body. What do we need to know about the upper body? I think one of the first things that come to my mind is people's hands. And I've heard um, that people, um, when you're giving a speech, they like to see the palms of your hands because you don't come off as dangerous. Uh, I might have heard that from you or just from somebody else. Yeah, probably from you. Talking a little (laughs) bit about talking about palms and hands. Yes. So again, it's another um, evolved response. If I show you the palms of my hands, um, I think you can see there with the sun. Um, you can see I'm not holding a weapon. Um, In evolutionary history, weapons were very prominent and there was always a risk of threat. So if I don't show you the palms, if show you the palms of my hands and you see the back, or if I don't show you my hands, although logically you go, she's not going to be holding a weapon, it's called um, neuroception. Basically, our nervous system is constantly assessing the environment and reacting to it before we psychologically are. So this is, again, why we are very sensitive to nonverbal signals, because it's ingrained into us. When we show the palms of our hands, and it doesn't mean you need to constantly have your palms out. It just means when you are talking, this is perceived better than this is. So if I'm talking and I'm presenting and I'm like that, it's not that difficult just to twist my hand slightly, but it has a really big effect. And I catch myself doing it all the time. And it doesn't mean like like I'm doing it now, the backs of my hands. That doesn't take away from the behavior because I'm not doing it all of the time. It's not about the behavior constantly being there and you can't see the backs of my hands. It's about making sure that the palms are visible during that interaction. Um, And there's studies done looking at people that present publicly. Um, And another reason why the hands are so important is because we look more at the hands. If we look at people's eye tracking, we can see that they go to the hands more than anything else. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, and that the hand gestures, as well as the consistency of the hand gestures to the feet. Um, so if I have really open hands, but really closed off with my legs, I'm perceived as less competent. If I'm open in general with open palms, it increases competence. And there was a really nice study showing this where they had open hands and open feet closed hand, closed feet, and then mismatching. And when they found if it was mismatching or both closed, it was perceived as less competent and they were perceived as less confident. So it does have a really important effect, especially if you are a public speaker. Wow. So open hands and open feet. Yeah. Yeah. And try and avoid gestures like this, like the closed, um, closed fist. And when we're making statements like, you know, we can do this a lot of the time, we, we do close our fist to make a statement. Again, it's a threatening gesture. And even if it's not overtly perceived as one, innately it is. So I always just say, you know, try and keep your hands fluid. And again, we're really sensitive to fast movement. So if I'm talking, my hands are flying all over the place. It's so distracting. Um, and it's difficult to get that balance between 
too many gestures and not enough. But I always teach that it's kind of the speed that matters when you're very fluid with your hands and you're talking and you're kind of leading people with your hands. That's great. If your hands are flying all over the place, that takes away from the information. Yeah, this is in line with, um, I don't know if you read the book, it's called Pitch Perfect by a guy named Bill McGowan. He was on my show a couple of weeks ago and he's a speech and communications coach. He's worked with some very brilliant people like Mark Zuckerberg, for example, and people at Facebook. Wow. And one of the things he talked about was that one of the worst things that you could do is just speaking with hands is putting them in your pockets and then also crossing their arms because yeah. you can't see them. Very obvious, but I think some people feel comfortable putting them in their pockets and maybe it's an insecurity thing. Maybe they're uh, shy, nervous, anxious, whatever. Uh, have you had any sort of um, studies or research on hands and pockets or crossing the arms that you ha we haven't talked about yet? Yeah. So interestingly, the crossing of the arms is perceived as a display of distress and disagreement and resistance. It isn't. It, it, it doesn't relate to resistance. And it's also a blocking display. But again, it can be, but then it can also not be. Um, but because it's perceived that way, and because there's such a misunderstanding that when I cross my arms, it means a certain thing, it's kind of carried. And now, even though that's not what it's communicating, it's perceived that way. So when I see someone cross their arms, right. I rate them more negatively. So even though it isn't a distress display, try and avoid it. Because if it's perceived that way, it doesn't matter what the intention is. It's all about person perception. Our perception is our reality. It's like if you are trustworthy, but you can't communicate that you are trustworthy, what does it matter? Right. Because you're not going to be perceived as trustworthy. You're not going to get the trust. Everything is about perception. You know, nonverbal communicator doesn't make you a better speaker in the information, but it makes you appear to be a better speaker. It doesn't make you more trustworthy makes you appear to be more trustworthy and that's the other side of the coin you've got to have both you can't just have non-verbal communication and no verbal aspects but you can't have the verbal aspects and expect that to carry you the whole way because we know that non-verbal communication is massively important and actually we make our first impressions within 33 milliseconds of someone and the first impressions that we make we know are based off non-verbal communication and they are resistant to change. So if we are having a conversation and you judge me as warm and inviting, and then my information that I share is contrary to that, it's actually very difficult for you to then reassess that judgment. Obviously, you can reassess that, but we're more resistant to reassess that. So it does go a long way to understand these minor changes because they do have a carrying effect. 33 milliseconds, not a lot of time. No, no, it, it's quite incredible how quickly we judge based on nonverbal communication. And it's judgments of attractiveness and judgments of trustworthiness that are the first two judgments that we make. Um, and it, again, it's on this threat and safety scale because trust is a judgment of safety, basically. When we trust someone, we trust that we can be vulnerable with them and they won't exploit that. So it's within this safety dimension, it's evolved to do so. That's why we have displays of trustworthiness, because we signal that we are cooperators. And as a social group, as a social species, signals of cooperation and trustworthiness are ingrained into us. And that's why we are so sensitive to them. Mm. And I think if we were to move up to the face, I think one of the one of the best 
things or, uh, you know, things that we could, you know, really get out to the listeners is the impact of a smile. And sometimes I think we forget yes. about this. I recently, uh, not recently, actually, this was a long time ago. I don't know if you've read this book. Here's another one. It's called How the Body Knows Its Mind by Sion Bylock. And she came on the show and talked about, about a lot about the mind-body connection. And yeah. in the book, in the beginning, it was actually pretty cool. She talked about this study that talked about uh, Botox, Botox in the face. And yes. do you know of this? I, I recently did a podcast talking about this exact study. Fantastic. So the yeah. Botox, for the listeners that haven't been caught up or didn't listen to the show, basically they put Botox on people that were depressed and put them in kind of a smiling type of facial expression. And it cured some of these people's or treated, I guess, some of their depression. So the power of smile not only helps externally feeling uh, other people's trust, but also internally in the feelings and emotions going on inside. So as we talk about so the I'm, face, go ahead. Yeah, I'm going to jump back on that Botox Please study do. because that is kind of what it shows, but that that wasn't what the effect was driving. So the smile we know creates oxytocin in the brain because our facial nerve is connected to the pons in the brain. So when we have certain emotions, our brain says to our facial nerve, do this expression. So when we do that expression first, our facial nerves say to our brain, I feel this emotion. So it's an interconnected system. It's bi-directional. When we smile, it releases oxytocin in the brain and it creates more happiness or it facilitates the feeling of happiness. It doesn't create happiness. It increases the feeling. And that's a really important differentiation because it's, not strong enough. If we're in a bad mood and we just smile to instantly feel better, it's a nudge in the right direction. The Botox study, and I know this because I have done another study recently looking exactly at the eyebrows and the effects of eyebrow movements on perceptions of employability, um, which seems like a weird connection, but it makes sense. I'd love to hear about um, it. Yeah. This, the study on Botox, when we furrow our brows, it's when we're angry. Um, or we feel negative affect. So when we restrict the movement of furrowing the brows, it reduces negative affect. It doesn't increase positive affect, but it reduces negative. And again, that's a really important differentiation because if we just stop furrowing our brows, it won't make us happier. It will stop us being sadder. Again, a small nudge. Mm -hmm. And what the Botox study showed, and I think this is a fantastic study because there was one looking at 15 individuals and then another one replicating it with 30. And all of the ones that have replicated it have found a really strong effect. Um, and because Botox stops you being able to move those muscles, you can't throw the brows. People that were clinically depressed, but they were clinically depressed and they made sure that they didn't have fine lines. They didn't have wrinkle lines. So the, the effect wasn't being carried by the fact that they were looking younger or looking better. It was simply the emotion and it reduced their symptoms and this is this is huge because we know that we don't fully understand how antidepressants work you know they don't work on serotonin like we thought that they did uh, and we don't fully understand even what depression is from a neurological perspective because it's kind of interconnected with multiple other mental health disorders and we know that there might be some commonality which is why again it's so difficult to target them individually because we don't fully understand how these antidepressants work and they don't work for a lot of people and they have such severe side effects and depression is a, you know debilitating and if this 
simple Botox treatment is helping reduce depression because of the power of nonverbal communication. And it's the connection between the facial nerve and the pons. That's amazing. And it really, again, speaks to the power of body language and nonverbal communication. Mm. And it also, I think you talk about a lot about trust and building trust. One of yes. the best and quickest ways to do that is with a smile. Yep. Absolutely. When we see a smile, it releases serotonin in the brain and oxytocin in the brain. So when we see a smile, it makes us happier, but it also makes us feel more positive towards that person. And we know that we have emotional contagion as well. So that's another factor. When we see someone express an emotion with their face, we automatically mimic that emotion, not always, but it's a really natural human tendency and newborns show it. That's how they learn empathy. Also, you know, it's a facilitator of empathy. We mimic and it creates emotional contagion, which is why when you are really excited and you go into a room and everybody's miserable, instantly it's like the energy just drains from you but then you might be in a really bad mood and then you have a conversation with someone and they're super upbeat super excited and you leave that conversation feeling really energized because emotions are catchy you know it's like a flu you know you you pass emotions through emotional contagion so that's another reason why the smile is so powerful it releases oxytocin releases serotonin it's a social signal and it's evolved to do so And I always use my favorite study to highlight this. It's when people go bowling. When you hit a strike, you don't smile when you hit the strike. You smile when you turn around Mm -hmm. to show people. And they've looked at people when they smile. And it's literally, you know, straight face, hit the strike, turn around, and then you're excited. Because it's not the action. It's communicating the action with others. And that's the purpose of the smile. Mm. You also talked, that's such a cool story. You also talked about in one of your articles that um, the power of smile when being recruited for a job and going through interviews and headshots. Talk to me about that study. That's interesting. Yes. And I can tie that in with the eyebrow study as well. Please do. um, Because I I forgot to mention the employability with the eyebrows. So they're two kind of similar studies. Um, And the smile study was one of the reasons why I did the um, looking at eyebrow movements and employability. Because Nowadays, most people are recruited online. Most people are searched for on websites like LinkedIn, or they will submit their CV to an online application. Um, And most of the time we have a headshot with our CVs. Um, And often when you're looking for someone, you just see the headshot. So you often just see the picture before you have any interaction with them. And then we go into an interview and we think that that's our first interaction. We think, okay, well, now I'm going to form the first impression you already have a fully formed first impression. And that headshot picture doesn't just affect your perception, it affects your hiring decisions. So what previous research has shown is that people that were neutral in their headshots, so just a very neutral expression, and people that were showing thinking faces, you know, looking really into the distance, like they were really thinking about something, they had the hand on the chin, the, the typical thinking pose. And then they had people smiling um, and they found that people that were smiling were rated as more employable than the other two. Um, And I wanted to look at the eyebrows because of the negativity factor. And again, because of the threat factor, I do so much work in trust. I kind of wanted to flip the coin and look at the fear factor. When we see the eyebrows and we see them furrow, it's a signal of threat because it's an anger expression. 
So we have this evolved dislike towards this firing of the brows. And loads of research has shown that when people fire their brows, they're perceived more negatively. Their personality is perceived more negatively. Just like if you see someone smile and you see them really happy, even though it's just in that moment, you perceive their personality in general more positively. So I wanted to see if we could, it would affect employability judgments, firing of the brows, because trustworthy judgments and confidence judgments and likability, they all go into employability. They, they're all part of how we perceive someone's employable. And what I found was exactly what I expected to find. Um, that when the brow was furrowed, and I looked at three different types of furrowing, so like a really deep furrow, slight furrow, and then no furrow at all. When they had a deep furrow for both men and females, but this, the effect was strongest in men, they were perceived as less employable than if they weren't furrowing. So don't furrow your brows and smile in your headshot picture and you have the best ability and I always kind of teach it on both sides. So for candidates, I always teach what not to do and what to do. And then recruiters, I kind of do the opposite and say, okay, well, although I'm a nonverbal communication coach, what you need to do is look beyond the nonverbals mm. because nonverbals are great to use as judgments of employability because it's amazing to have nonverbal communication skills and it's highly important as an employee. But we put too much emphasis that nonverbal communication communicates skills and ability, and it doesn't. It, it doesn't necessarily communicate that at all. It just communicates that you are good at perception management, which is a great skill to have. But it's not your only skill you need because we can over-assume that they are trustworthy, that they are competent, that they are confident. We hire them put them in a position and we realized we've actually overlooked their qualifications because we liked them because we felt positive towards them. So as the candidate, it's really good to know how to utilize this to your advantage as a recruiter, you've got to kind of recognize great skill to have. Let me make sure that the judgments I'm making are not based on this. This is a separate factor, your nonverbal communication skills let me consider fully your information. And people always say, oh yeah, well, I'm not judging on nonverbal communication. I'm judging on ability. We're not. We know that we're not. And it's so unconscious. You don't look at a candidate headshot and say, well, they're firing their brows. So they're not as employable. Just like we don't look at the feet and say, well, their foot's tipped away. So they're less approachable. It just happens. It's just so unconscious. But when we understand that this is an effect, we can be more aware. And then we can engage that system too. We can be more thoughtful. We can kind of bypass that really quick automatic judgment. Right. And as you said earlier, you have 33 milliseconds to make this happen. So this could be on a LinkedIn. It could be on some of the popular online dating sites where people are swiping left and swiping right. You have yeah. a very, very quick, less than a second time to make uh, a judgment call. And so one simple thing, like you said, it's just making sure that you're not frowning, you're smiling. Um, and that right there could be, make the difference between somebody yeah. taking a second on you and maybe five seconds or whatever it is and swiping the other way. Exactly. And that's a good point about looking for longer because longer interactions are often the goal of mm -hmm. so many things. Like in forensic investigations, we think that the goal is to get information and is to get a confession. And it's not. The goal is just to get information, but 
consistent, accurate information. You just want conversations. You just want them to be honest and continue talking to you. Just like when you're getting to know someone, you want reciprocal self-disclosure. That, that's the goal of so many interactions. And if you can increase FaceTime and you can just increase the time that you are in a room with somebody, that can be really useful. And again, as a recruiter, it, it's a really useful skill to have because the longer that you have with someone, the more comfortable they feel to give you information if you are presenting yourself well, the better. And the more accurately you can make a judgment of that person. One thing I wanted to get into, uh, again, for Bill McGowan, the speech coach I had on, one of the things he talked about was when he brings on a new client and he works with them. One of the things that they struggle with or they come to him with problems is that their audience just looks bored when they're listening to their speech. And what he tried to say is, you know what? A lot of people's bored face and and people listening are probably putting their bored face on right now is actually their listening face. And he just said, don't confuse the bored face with the listening face. And then I wanted to ask, I said, well, Bill, if a a majority of us are putting on our board face, but we're actually interested. And let's say we want to switch that because it, maybe it looks disrespectful. What's what? What can we do? Yeah. And one of the things he recommended to me, and I've been doing it ever since, is there's a slight head tilt to the right or to the left. He said doesn't really matter, but just yeah. having a subtle tilt to the side and being a podcast interviewer and somebody that listens to speeches. This has been really profound for me. I've been really trying to do it. Um, you know, every single day. Have you talked or looked into anything that has to do with head tilting? Yes. So this is why, I mean, my head is slightly tilted. Um, and also I, I typically kind of sit slightly sideways. I, I never sit fully on okay. because when you sit fully on it, it's threatening. This is what we do when we're in attack. We've evolved to be sensitive to that. And in normal face-to-face interactions, we're not typically completely face on. So I always have like a, a slight tilt because what it's about more your comfortable. Feet? But you can't see my feet. Okay, but what if you're in a what if you're at a restaurant with somebody? Yeah. Or or I don't know, as some type of scenario, are you still saying yes. that their feet should be facing them? Yes. So okay. if we are in an interaction where they can see my feet, I mean if they okay. can't see it, like yeah, it I could matter. be doing whatever I want with my feet and you would have no idea. So that's not important. If you can see them, then it does become important. Okay. And then I try and angle my whole body kind of towards them. Um the reason that they throat and the neck is so powerful is because here it's such a vulnerable part of the body so if we're talking back in our evolutionary history about threats the neck is what's going to kill us if a predator comes the neck is something we need to protect so when we show our neck and we tilt our head to the side it's a signal of i'm not a threat and it's basically a safety gesture it creates trust because it creates comfort comfort and if you look at dogs for example they turn to the side, they show their flanks when they want to say, hey, I'm not a threat, I'm a friend. And they do the same thing because, again, they're exposing a vulnerable part of the body. Um, And I love this example because Charles Darwin, um, in his book, um, Emotions, uh, Expressions of Emotion in Man and Animals, which was the first book ever really to be published in nonverbal communication. And it's the most incredibly influential book and almost Every research in this field is influenced in some way by this book. Um, He did research on, or he studied his dog. And that's what kind of tipped him off to these gestures are universal because he saw his dog doing certain things and then saw it happen in humans as well. Um, And the neck is a really powerful, but again, subtle gesture. You don't want to do it too much and be, you know, completely tipped over, 
Um, just as, you know, nodding the head when someone's talking. You don't want to do it too much, but it is a really powerful gesture. Well, the head tilt, if I'm hearing you correctly, is more about the neck exposure than the actual yes. head itself. Yeah. Yeah. It's more about the fact that the neck's being exposed. And even if my hair, if I bring my hair back, you can't see my neck. It still has an effect because my head's tilted. But really, if you do show your neck, it's that sign. But it doesn't matter too much. If your neck's covered, but you're still tilting your head, it still has an effect because we're still sensitive to the movement of the behavior. You don't need to you know, get your neck out and, <laughs> and then tilt your head. Interesting. So uh, another part about body language could be um, spatial awareness, how far you are away from somebody yes. when you're talking to them. I know you, you touched briefly on leaning in and leaning back. Is there a difference between that and just how much space you're giving somebody when you're talking to them? Yeah. So proxemics is our use of space. Yes. So everybody has kind of their preferred bubble of how close they like people to them. And different cultures have different bubbles. So some cultures like to be really close, like New York, um, whereas in Britain, it's a bit further away. Um, and then other cultures, it's completely different. So when you go and travel, you might feel like it's a bit uncomfortable. Like I've gone to countries and people are, you know, I'm trying to order my food and they're right up close to my face. And you think, <laughs> wow, back off. But it's just their culture. And for them, it's rude to move away. Um, and it can be difficult to judge that if you don't know the exact. And I mean, there is an exact measurement to it, but it overcomplicates it because you can't get a ruler out and think, okay, how many inches? So I just say, you know, if you have a conversation with someone and then you're having a conversation and their reaction is to step back one, then step back a little bit too. If their reaction is to step forward, you know, don't step too far forward, but just recognize that that is their proxemics. That's their comfortable use of space. But again, everyone has their own bubble. And we go through experiences like trauma survivors, um, particularly sexual trauma, are very different with their space a lot of the time, you know, um, justifiably. So they will tend to kind of step backwards because they prefer their own sense of safety in their bubble. So it's just about recognizing if someone looks uncomfortable and if someone is showing you lots of distress behaviors and kind of making themselves really small, probably showing you lots of anxious displays, just take a step back and give them a bit more space because maybe they don't want to move away, but just give them a bit of space to make them feel a bit more comfortable. Cool. As we close down, was there anything that we missed with body language? I mean, Any I think we ones? could go on for <laughs> hours and hours about body language. Is there anything and else I, that I we think, uh, want to get to? Uh, I think we covered um, the basis. Um, I will say um, just about trust in the face. And we were talking about um, the emotional expression on the face, like the smiling and the frowning. Emotional expressivity is really key for trust. So it's not just about smiling and the frowning. It's about generally being emotionally expressive. And that's actually one of the most powerful drivers for trust. So originally smile and we much prefer positive countenance than negative. So we like someone who's generally really positively expressive, but it has to be consistent. So if you're telling me about a horrible day you've had, and I'm like, oh, that's so sad, and I'm smiling, it's inconsistent with the interaction. So I've got to tone it down and not just look neutral while you're talking, be emotionally expressive. 
show empathy on my face while you're talking. Um, and this sounds really simple, but business leaders have this, often have this perception they need to be poker-faced. And they talk about going into negotiations and say, well, I don't want to give any information away, so I'm going to have a poker face. They can't read me. You're doing yourself a disservice because negotiations is all about cooperation. You want a mutually beneficial interaction. It's not about one getting one over on the other because everybody's going to go in thinking that. It really is just about a mutually beneficial arrangement. So you need cooperation. How do we facilitate cooperation? Trust. If you go in with a neutral expression and you're not giving them anything, you're going to find it harder to create trust with them. So it's actually going to make that negotiation much more resistant. So being emotionally expressive can only benefit you. Again, not too much. Um, too much of anything, especially when it comes to nonverbals, goes over the top. But just try and recognize when you are being too neutral. And I guess that speaks to your point about the audience. How can we recognize when we're being too neutral? When you are listening to someone, and I have to kick myself for this because I have such a, a resting face <laughs> when I'm thinking. I look really angry. And I've had people like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm just thinking. <laughs> are you okay? But I look angry when I think. So I have to really make a conscious effort to adjust that when someone's talking to me, especially if we're in some kind of debate or they're talking about their research. And I'm really thinking it through. If I'm showing an angry face, it's going to have a really negative effect. So just be aware of what your face is doing, basically. What a great place to end. Uh, gosh, this yeah. was really insightful. You're brilliant, Abby. Thank you so much for taking the time. If my listeners want to learn more from you, uh, what's the best place that I can direct them? Um, so you can find me at my website, which is just abbymorano.com. And you can find me on LinkedIn, which is just Dr. Abby Morono. And then Twitter, which is just Abby J. Morono. Abby, thanks for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me.